Nachyomi for the Orthodox Union, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, Perik Vav, Chapter 6. Rabbi Bini Marilis. In Chapter 6, we come upon, for the first time, uh, an individual of incredible force and incredible magnitude in the person of uh, Gidon. Gidon uh, will come across in a very interesting way. Essentially, is Misarev. He's um, uh, not interested per se, not uh, convinced that he's deserving to be the leader of the Jewish people. Um, and even further is the notion that will accrue to Gidon a little bit later when we'll see that there the there's an inkling of a hinting towards the notion of being a king that the Jewish people desires of a Melech and that uh, there's a hinting to the notion that that person should be in fact Gidon. <clears throat> Gidon, in terms of our Shoftim, uh, comes to us by virtue of the tribe of Menashe, whereas we've seen uh, Shoftim from a variety of different places already. Uh, here we move to a different Shevet now, we're moving essentially a little bit north in the map to uh, Menashe, and uh, we'll see what family he comes from, and we'll see exactly what's in store for him. Uh, Pair begins as follows. Begins in the notion, in a similar way, is again, We've seen before the progression through the different behaviors of the Jewish people and the ramifications of that behavior on them. We'll now see another enemy come to the Jewish people. Um, this one is Midian. So we've seen Ammon, we've seen Moab, we've seen a little bit of Plishti, we've seen, you know, Kananim, we've seen a little bit of Mori. A lot of different um, enemies coming to the Jewish people. And here we hear from Midian. Now the Jewish people are doing that which is bad in the eyes of God. The significance of which Rashi points out, Till this point he kept saying, and they added on X and Y and Z. Rashi says that with the Shira, that part of the, the reward quote-unquote, for the Shira, was that the people essentially got a clean slate in the hands of God. However, but here now they're beginning to do Averis again. So now it doesn't say Vayosifu at the beginning, it says Vayasu. So interestingly enough, the procedure and the process that we mentioned over and over and over again, um, not only were they cleansed of it, so that essentially it should be separated from them, they returned to it, only making it essentially infinitely worse, with respect to the relationship with God. So, God gives them over to Midian for seven years. As opposed to Vayim Kireim, here it's Vayitneim. And we'll see what that is. Vayitneim, God gives them over. How does that work? How is that different than Vayim Kireim? So we'll see going forward. <coughs> The seven-year period is not a long period of time in comparison to the 20 years that we spoke about before and other periods of great length prior to that. But nonetheless, at the hands of Midian, it's a very different type of shibud, a different type of servitude, a different type of uh, quote-unquote enslavement. And essentially, boils down to the notion of food. And when the Jews planted and the Jews were growing, uh, the Midianites would come like a locust, essentially, and uh, overwhelm 
the Jewish population essentially take everything. And that's what we'll see here. Vataz Yad Midian Al Yisrael. The hand of Midian was strong against the Jewish people. So that because the Midianites are very strong against the Jewish people, that they become powerful versus the Jews, so it forced the Jews to sort of set up camps in um, irregular types of places. They're looking to hide, they're looking to move away, they're looking to be in places where they wouldn't be found out. And we'll see in a moment that we're talking here with respect to the notion of planting and growing. So if you're planting and growing in the public fields, everyone knows you're planting and growing. Can no one to arrive and to take. But if you're doing it in hidden locations, if you're doing it in caves and in tunnels and in other places, um, fortresses, then uh, they're not, they're not going to know. And that's what it says now. Vaya im Yisrael. And if it was that the Jews would plant, so then Midian and Amalek and Vnei Kedem would come upon them, would rise up against them. So where are Midian, Amalek, and Vnei Kedem? And Das Mikra has a very nice map at the beginning of the chapter. It essentially says like this, Midian will exist for our purposes to the southeast of the Jewish, uh, of the land of Israel, southeast of the Sinai. Amalek will exist in the Sinai and a little bit north. And the Bnei Kedem is essentially people of the East. The people of the East would be beyond what was um, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Um, if you remember where we had Ammon, Moab, and Edom, Moab and Edom were in the south near the Kinneret, uh, near the Yamamelach, on the Jordan side, modern Jordan side. And Ammon was essentially behind them, uh, heading north to south. So behind them, behind those areas, would be something what's called Bnei Kedem. Essentially would be peoples of the East. Peoples of the East could really cover... A variety of populations, but essentially it seems that they knew when the Jews were planting and when the seasons were, and they would come and they would take. They would encamp on them in verse four. And they would destroy essentially the uh, the bounty and the and the plenty of the land. They would go all the way to the point of Aza, Aza being all the way on the uh, Mediterranean coast. And essentially, they would leave nothing over. No, no way for the Jewish people to to produce uh, and have product and have produce and to have to have that which they need to survive. Why? They would come up with their cattle. Va'ahalehem and their tents. Uva'u k'dei arbelarov. They are like a locust, right? So many people. Vilahem vilagmalehem ein mispar. It's as if you can't simply count them. They would simply overwhelm the the Jewish people where they were, essentially like almost like a camp of refugees that are on the move. And they would come and they would destroy the land. They would take everything. Verse 6, And the Jewish people essentially were put down, down, down. Dal comes from the language that we know of someone who's very, very poor. Aniva Evion, a person who's a very poor person, destitute almost. So at the point when the Jewish people were put down to the degree where they're suffering by not having anything that is almost like a physical suffering, a psychological suffering, physical suffering. 
that they didn't have that which to sustain themselves and, a, and a, an emotional, psychological suffering by virtue of the fact that any time they would plant something or they would uh, pretend, be on the belief that they would have uh, some sort of a growth that year, uh, it would be taken and destroyed um, by the Midianite camp. So as usual, the Jews would cry out to God. And here it's Vayizaku versus what we saw previously, previously in chapter 4, which was Vayitzaku. So Vayizaku, we said, was a, uh, a lesser version. Right? It's, a, it's a lesser version than Vayitzaku. Perhaps maybe it's that they're not actually being physically beaten in any way. It's a uh, lesser form. So they cry out to God, and God responds. But he responds differently than he has responded in the last few chapters. In the last few chapters where they cried out and God responded, he responded specifically with a shofet. Here God responds with something else. And so it was that they cried out to God, on the matters of Midian, verse 8, God sends a prophet to the Jewish people. Again, this is different. This is reminiscent of what we saw at the beginning of the of the of the sefer, when we have a malach, an angel coming. Here we have a navi coming. Interestingly enough, all the commentaries seem to point, that most of the commentaries seem to point that the notion of who this person is, that this person is in fact again Pinchas. So Pinchas, who's ma'arich yamim, who seems to have an incredible amount of years in his lifespan. And we're talking now well over a hundred years after uh, the stories of Yehoshua and many, many, close to probably a hundred years from the beginning of the Sefer and he was not a young man per se when they're in the Midbar so he's a very, very old man and if this is in fact the Navi but you can imagine the impact of, of Pinchas arriving on the scene and offering up the following language of prophecy to the people as you mentioned that Pinchas represents um, two very powerful uh, points one being Kinas Hashem, the, person, the notion of being jealous for the sake of God. They call him a Kanoi, a zealot, but none, at the same time, he is the embodiment of the Brit Shalom, of the covenant of peace. So here's this powerful personality, this incredibly spiritual person who comes to the Jewish people, not as the Shofet, but as some sort of a separate Navi, and he says as follows, Vayom Berlahem, Yisrael, this is what God of the, of the people of Israel has said. Again, a, a notion of repetition of our history. God says, I took you out of Mitzrayim. I took you up out of Mitzrayim. And I took you out. I freed you essentially from bondage, from servitude, from slavery. And I saved you from the hand of Mitzrayim, and from all of those who battled against you. Commentaries point out, who is that? That would perhaps be Sichon Va'og and the other enemies. And I chased them away from you. And I gave you their lands. That's sort of in very brief form, repeating all that which was. And I said to you, the Dat Sofran says the word Ve'omra doesn't mean one time, but rather it means I mean, many, many times, a multitude of opportunities that this was stated to you. Ani Adonai Eloheichem, I am your God. Lo siru es Eloheha emeri, asheratam yashim ba'artham. Don't fear in any way the God of the Emorim, 
who will sit amongst you and who you sit amongst them. Lo shematem bekoli. And you didn't listen. You didn't listen to me. You didn't listen to me. That's what points out here. Lo shematem bekoli is the end of the statement. You didn't listen to me. So he doesn't say anything further. There's no notion of um, completion, a maskana, a fulfillment, in, uh, a finishing of his statement. It simply seems to be that it's a davar yadua. Again, the, the, uh, another person comes and tells them and speaks to them about that which they have done and that which they haven't done in less words, and it seems to be enough. It seems to be enough to push the people to the point where they return, or they begin the process perhaps of return, and now we get a shofet. So it's sort of an interlude, which we didn't have before, but yet a little bit here, um, of this Navi. In verse 11, we begin to meet Gidon. And we meet Gidon in a very interesting way. He doesn't simply appear on the scene um, at the beginning of the chapter like you have with the Devorah, or simply in the middle of the story like you'll get with an Ehud, that they're already involved in some way. Here you find that he's simply a pashat working man. He's a simple guy working at home on the farm or working working at home near the fields. And uh, this now a malach, an angel comes upon him. Vayavo malach Adunai, the angel of God comes. Vayeshev tachas ha'ila And he comes, and literally speaking, he sits under the tree in Ofra. Asher Yoash Aviha Ezri, that belongs to Yoash, the father of the family of Ezri. And Gidon is working, we'll explain what he's doing in a moment, and he's doing it in a place that the Midianites would not see him. So let's first explain where Ofra is. If one knows that Menashe is slightly, um, I guess one would call it in the northern half of the land of Israel, just above Ephraim, which is just above Binyamin, which is just above Yehuda which is essentially the southern point. So Menashe is further to the north, um, to the west of the Yardain. And the place called Ofra, amongst the families, so essentially Menashe in this area was broken down into five different families. Ofra appears all the way to the west. It appears on the edge of the mountainous, central mountainous region of the land of Israel. And there's this place called Ofra all the way out there. If one would go due west, you would end up at the Mediterranean. So he's in Ofra. This is where he is. And his son Gidon is working. And he's working. He's pounding. Uh, he's pounding the chita. He's, be- he's beating down the, um, the chita so that he can essentially make bread. But he's doing it in a place and in a way that's not, that's not regular. Normally one would do something perhaps like this with an animal, would use certain types of tools. Here he's doing it and he's hiding. He's doing it in a place, as we mentioned before, out of the range and out of the vision of the Midianite people so that they won't come and they won't steal it. He's crafty, but he's certainly simply smart in the notion that if I do it here, and I do it in this way, so nobody would be able to uh, to find me. He's doing it in Ogat. The God is a wine press. He's hiding from the Midianites. He's hiding from them so they won't come and they won't take it. This is what we mentioned before, the idea of tunnels and and, and uh, caves. So here he's working. And the Malach 
appears to him and speaks to him. God is with you. That you are a strong fighter. I don't know where he says this to Gidon. And it's not clear to us at any point here that Gidon is any sort of a great fighter. Perhaps um, by virtue of his age, uh, perhaps he participates in the war with Barak and Devorah. That's a speculation, but perhaps he's one of those. And perhaps it's known um, by virtue of the fact and the manner that he's working, the way Rashi understands it, he calls him a Gibra Chayal because of what he's doing, that he's working this and he's doing this and he's 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 pressing and he's grinding this food here and he's doing it with his hands, he's doing it with small utensils, so then he's a very strong, he's a very powerful per- person. It's not clear, it's certainly not clear, that Gideon has any sort of an inkling as to who this person is. But let's see what Gidon says. Gidon speaks to him. Sort of like an introduction. Excuse me, sir. Is there a God amongst us? Is there a God who took us, who's with us, who leads us? If that's true, why do we have all of this? Why are we suffering in the way that we are? We're all of his miracles. Who, so, who, who our fathers told us all about, all the wonders and all the magic and all the miracles. Did not God take us out of Mitzrayim? And now God treads upon us. God steps on us. And God's handing us over into the hands, into the palm of Midian. Rashi adds a very interesting wrinkle here. That this takes place on Pesach. And he just came, almost in a certain sense, from the Seder. And he hears, And the great Geula that was, the leaving of Egypt. And he hears them singing Hallel. Rashi says, and now, like, what are we? Where are we? Rashi takes it further. If our fathers were great, righteous people, then do something for us in their merit. Then if they were bad, so then, since you did that for them, not out of merit, but rather for free, then do them for us also. Then where are all these things? And why, and he argues very well on both sides of the coin. If they were good, so then in their merit do something for us good. And if they were bad, and you essentially then have no reason per se to give them or do anything for them other than as a gift, so then gift that for us as well. So, the Malach is challenged. Rashi says it's a Kaddish Baruch himself. God speaks to him directly. Others simply say in the way that we talked about the the person with whom which Yeshua speaks, that it's simply a mouthpiece for God, but it's in the, 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 the embodiment of this Malach, of this angel. Lech Midian. 
go and beat down Midian, go and rescue the people, go and be the savior of the Jewish people. Haloshelachticha, did they not send you? Did they not send you? Are, are you not the one? Are you not ready? Can you not accomplish this? God has already commanded it. We saw that language of hello in Devorah's language to Barak. Was this not commanded? Isn't this something we should be doing already? You can do it. Gidon, based on what you're saying, based on your argument, based on that which, you, uh, which, which, you, which you've learned here about the Jewish people, you're, you're persuasive, you have it, you have the skill, you have the ability, go, HaKadosh Baruch who's going to help you. Gidon's not convinced. Vayomri how am I going to do anything? My family, the, the thousands from which I come, is the lowest in Menashe. And I'm the youngest in my father's house. So what Gidon says, what do you mean? So, so I speak very nicely, and I made a nice argument. But Lamaisa, I'm the bottom of the bottom. Not only is my family the bottom, but I'm the bottom of my family. So he's like the last pick. Fear not, I am with you. And you should, uh, and you can hit down, and you can destroy Midian. So you would think that would be enough. Right? Here's Gidon, who's arguing with his Malach. It's not clear to him that it's exactly a Malach. He's arguing back and forth. The person now says to him, Gidon, you can lead the Jewish people out. He's not convinced. He says, but you can. He's not convinced. Then he offers another reason, is I'm the youngest and I'm the smallest. I can't do it. And God answers, I'll be with you. How much more does one need than the fact that God says that I'll be with you. Don't worry about it. It's it's over. Fear not, I'm with you. Nonetheless, he's not convinced. And he goes further with the argument and the battle here. So, how do we understand it? Is it simply that Gidon, you know, is a katan be'amuna, that he simply doesn't have faith in God? Or is it perhaps a different approach? And this is the Dasofram's approach, and this will be the Dasofram's approach on many situations and many matters, where he gives the benefit of the doubt. And what he says here is no. He firmly believes that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is going to save the Jewish people, and that in fact he's going to save them by the hands of some great shofate. He's not convinced that it's himself. That he, Gidon, is meritorious and worthy of this task and of this role. And we'll see that by virtue of asking for some sort of a sign, and then asking for another sign, that it's personally related, that it will be Ado, that it will be through his hands. Not so much that it's going to happen, but who's going to lead them into that place, into that situation. So he says back in verse 17, if I have found favor in your eyes, then do for me something that I can believe, that I can know that in fact this is exactly that this what's happening is in fact happening. If you want to draw a parallel from something that's going to happen at the beginning, you say for Shmuel. So Shmuel initially at the outset of the book is also not convinced and is not immediately aware of who it is that he's speaking with even though the person is speaking to him in a way that no one else could speak to him and from a location that no one else could speak to with a charge that no one else is offering here he asks for a sign something that says that you're with me what's the sign? 
So now he goes through and he says, "Al na tamush ad Don't move. Stay where you are. Stay where you're located. Don't leave this position. And I'll bring out my mincha, or a gift, my korban, if you want to say it. Right? He's going to offer out his gift. And I'm going to uh, put it out before you. I'm going to leave it out before you. He doesn't say what he's going to do with it. He just said, I'm going to bring it out here. And he answers, okay, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. What an amazing moment. Here you have a Malach Hashem, an angel of God, speaking to you, and you ask him to hold on a second. Really? Like, can you do that? Um, but you don't. Again, as we mentioned, if you want to take the approach, he's not a hundred percent convinced um, who it is that he's speaking to, a, by virtue of the fact that he doesn't believe he could be worthy of such a conversation, or that he could be worthy of the task that's being asked asked of him. Okay, so he's going to be there. V'gidon ba, Gidon arrives. V'yaz gidi izim, ve'efas kemach matzos. So he prepares for him an animal, and he prepares for him an amount of kemach matzos for matzos. All right, Rashi again points out. All right, it's, it's Pesach. Habasar sam basal. So he puts the meat in some sort of a uh, basket. V'hamarak sam parur, and he puts the soup whatever soup it is, in some sort of another uh, a jug or a bin or something else of that nature. You want to call Rashi says the marak is not actually soup, but it's sauce, okay, for the culinary amongst you. And he brings it out to the tree where the malach is, and they get together, where they are. So you have the, you have the korban there, the Korban there, the Tanakh goes to great detail to tell us all the specifics of this. And we continue, verse 20, Vayomeri lav malach Elohim. The malach now is a malach Elohim, he's, a, he's a, an angel of God, and he says as follows, Take the meat and the matzah, el hasela halas, and go put it on that rock. And pour out the sauce, the soup. Commentaries understand that he says to him to pour out the soup on top of the meat because of what he's about to do. Vayas came, and Gidon listens. Vayishlach malach Adonai as kitzei hamishenes asher The malach sends out, literally, the end, the uh, handle, the point of the mishenes is the rod that's with him in his hands. And it simply touches the matzah and the meat. And fire rises up from the rock. And it eats the meat and the, and the, and the matzah. And poof. The malach is gone. The malach is gone. Gidon realizes, oh, this was not just any guy, but this was a malach. He's blown away by the experience. He's also fearful. He's awed by what has just happened. He's just seen God. 
in essence. He's seen a malach. He's not usual, usually seeing malachim. And here he sees a malach. Panim el panim. Face to face, literally. And now, it seems, that as the Malach has left, now God speaks to Gidon directly. Fear not. Nothing will happen to you. You will not die. Yes, it was some form of Panim El Panim. But you are worthy of this. Gidon builds a, an altar there on the spot to God. He calls it God of Peace. It's in that place, it's in that location until this day. We now get essentially three pieces of the follow-up story. God asks of Gidon to do a certain task. Gidon fulfills a task in a certain matter. Gidon's father then defends him against the populace. And then Gidon asks for another sign of God. And it goes as follows. And it was on that night. God speaks to him and says as follows. Take an animal that belongs to your father. And take another animal that's a seven-year-old animal. And you should destroy the altar that's set up for Baal, for the idol Baal that belongs to your father. And that which is there, the Asherah that's there, you should lay waste to, cut down. But that's not it, if this, that wasn't enough. You should build an altar to God on that platform, in that location, you should build a different altar. Destroy the one that's there. Build up a new one for God. And you should take the second animal. Parenthetically, it doesn't mention the first animal. But you should take the second animal. And you should take from the trees, from the Asherah, right? Asherah is idol worship of a certain tree. Take from the from the branches of that and use that to burn a korban ola. A korban ola was, an, was a korban that was completely burnt up by the fire, completely taken up to heaven, from that tree that you just destroyed. Basically, he's saying to Gideon, Gideon, go into the public square, and to the place where they do idol worship, and I want you to, you know, if it was anyone else, put yourself into serious danger by destroying the altar that they use for their idol worship. Good luck. So, Gideon does it slightly differently. He takes ten men from amongst his slaves, he does as God had commanded of him. Now, what does it mean? Does that mean he does it exactly that way, and therefore taking ten people with him was something that God had commanded of him, although it's not written? Or does it mean he simply fulfills the task of the destruction of the altar, albeit it's a Gidon doing it in his own way? It seems to be more the second approach. And he's afraid to do it during the day. He does it at night. So Gidon is not yet the power warrior that we're going to see in the coming chapters. He's somewhat skittish, somewhat afraid. Um, he's fearful that um, you know doing this in the public form, in the public fashion, in the public manner uh, will be hazardous, in fact not dangerous. And that it's not something that um, he wants to participate in the same way. So he does it slightly differently. He takes ten people, he does it at night. 
so that no one sees it, but that they'll know once it's destroyed, and they'll have to figure it out. So by coming figuring it out, it'll perhaps go a different way than if he stands there in public, stops traffic, and asks everybody to watch as he destroys the Mizbeach. So he vayas balayla. He does it at night. Is he punished for it? No. Is he um, is he spoken to about that behavior? No. It's just the way he handles the business. Vayashkimu anshe ha'ir verse twenty-eight. The people of the of the town. Arise early in the morning. The Mizbeach of Baal has been uh, destroyed. And the Asherah that was there on that spot was taken down. And the second animal is now on the Mizbeach that was built on that spot. In verse 29, Who could have done such a thing? Amazing. They're doing drishas and chakiras. They're investigating who would possibly have the goal to destroy the idol and the idol, the location of idol worship in the, um, amongst the Jewish people. Vayidrishu, vayivakshu, they look into this at great depth. Vayomru, and they say, Gidon ben Yoash asahadavar hazeh. Gidon, the son of Yoash, had done this. It seems that his father Yoash, since the town is essentially on his name, is a major player in this idol-worshipping business, which is certainly maybe inappropriate for the father of one of the great Shoftim, um, but also perhaps it explains a lot with respect to his his uh, his hesitance in participating in doing what he does. The people of the city said to Yoash, Bring out your son so that he should die. Because he destroyed the Mizbeach and he destroyed the Asherah. He should die for such a thing. Again, great irony. Putting someone to death uh, for having destroyed uh, the Avodah that's in the location instead of like hoisting him on a chair and thanking him from stopping, from stopping them to, to worship idols. They want him to die for this act. The same way you want to think about Sodom. It's a similar type of activity. Bring the people out so that we may uh, do what we want to do with them. Here, bring out your son, kill him because he destroyed the Avodah so Yoash's father is very smart. So from here in this chat, in this verse, perhaps you can understand one of two ways. Yoash was not an active participant in the Avodah Zarah, or maybe that he is an active participant in the Avodah Zarah, but his son's life is at stake. So he offers up an explanation to them that works, although he may not believe it. Are you going to stand and fight for Baal? Imatem so. Are you going to be the ones who are going to fight for him? Shouldn't it not have been that if somebody did such a thing and he's, the now powerful, he's a powerful God, he's an idol, then they should be dead already. If he's a God, so then he should fight for, you know, for his altar. It's not on you. You can't fight for him. So perhaps he means it legitimately because they believe it, or perhaps he's being somewhat facetious in that kind of an argument because he knows what they know, that they know the truth. Either way. On that day, they call him, they give Gidon, as he's saved, they give him the name, that um, he fought, or they fought, they should fight with Gidon. That he brought down the Baal and he brought down the Mizbeach. And now it begins. 
after Gidon has fulfilled the task of, that God has asked him, albeit in his own way, now the warring situation begins, and he now is going to have to take on Midian, um, etc. So Midian and Amalek, they go and they settle, they encamp in a place called Emek Israel. Emek Israel, in the land of Israel, is centrally located um, to the north of Menashe, to the south of Zvulun, Naphtali, and Asher, is the valley, the area called Emek uh, Yisrael. It's on a direct diagonal from Beit Shan to the area that which would be modern day Haifa. So they draw there, and now this is to the north of Menashe. And now he has to set up and he has to go to war. Varuach Adunai, Lavsha as Gidon, right? The power of the strength, the, the Spirit of God rests on Gidon. Vayizkaba Shofar, he blows out on the Shofar, Vayizaik Aviezer Acharav, and he brings his entire family to follow him to the battle. Malachim Shalach Bukhob Menashe, he sends out. Uh, Emissaries to all of Anasha, Vizaikam Huacharav, and he crawls out to them as well. And he sends out all these different uh, people to draw in an army so that he can fight the war. And they come. They come. They all arrive. There's so much that, that he accepts Gidon for who he is. But before Gidon actually goes into war, he does one more test. It's a very interesting test, and it's a test that he uses with um, essentially a piece of wool and dew. Fascinating test. God speaks to God and he says like this. If it is in fact the reality that I'm the one who is going to save and to be the source of salvation for the Jewish people as you speak, as you've said, I'm going to put this piece of material in the Goran. <coughs> Right, a piece of wool on the threshing floor. al hagizal If there's going to be dew on the piece itself only, and all the land around it, it will be dry. Then I'll know that the salvation is in my, in my hands, as you have said. Why is that? Because he essentially views himself in the parallel. The dew is the ruach, uh, the spirit of God resting upon something. If it's the giza, it's the wool, it's the central object. The central object would be gidon. And if everything else is dry, so then he knows that it's from him. One object is wet, the rest of it is dry, it's by virtue of him. And so it was. He wakes up in the morning. And he takes the giza. He fills up essentially a, a, a jug of water from all the tile that's in the Giza. So it doesn't happen exactly the way he wants it, but it's very heavy, meaning that there's more in it than should have been in it. There's more in it than the surrounding areas themselves have. And therefore he understands perhaps that it's him, but he's not convinced. Don't get angry at me. That I'm asking again. And he wants that it should be the exact reverse. The tal should be on the ground, and the fleece, the wool itself, should be should be dry. And it is that exactly what he wants, and therefore he understands so that um, what's going on here is not simply only by virtue of him, but that perhaps that the people themselves have a role 
and that there is a Shechina resting upon them and that they are worthy meritorious of this event. In the coming chapter, we'll actually see the story of the war unfolding as well as the story of the uh, gathering of the army of Gidon.